Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Sometimes you need to name a phenomenon before people can admit that it's real. That's how Dr. Joy Wiggins and Dr. Camille Anderson approached the challenge of writing From Sabotage to Support, a book about how women of all backgrounds sometimes sabotage each other in the workplace, and how recognizing this reality can help them become more supportive. In this episode of Hack the Process, Joy and Camille tell us how they approached the challenge of writing collaboratively from across the country, why they decided to work with a publisher instead of self-publishing, and what unanticipated microaggressions came to the surface in their own process while they were working together. So today I'm talking with Dr. Joy Wiggins and Dr. Camille Anderson, and they are the authors of a new book called From Sabotage to Support. Joy, Camille, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Cool. Awesome, thank you. Thank you for having us. I'm really glad to have you here. And you two collaborated on a book, and that is always an interesting challenge. I'm really curious to hear how that went. <laughs> Actually, the collaboration was, I mean, it was work, yeah, but it was great. <laughs> we um, we were able to, just, just by nature of the book, we have become closer friends because of this collaboration, for sure, as we've shared some stories about ourselves that I don't think we'd share with other colleagues ever. <laughs> So it really did build our relationship just in doing the work together and being able to share the stories that we were sharing and being able to go through the process, just trying to trying to be a united front everywhere was enough to for us to build our intimacy in ways that most folks wouldn't imagine in a collaboration. I can just imagine. And you mentioned that you two are colleagues. Well, yes, we are colleagues because we're co-authors. <laughs> but we actually met in Spain a few years ago for uh, an intercultural seminar. We were there to learn about more about intercultural international education, and we were there together. And in the process of that exchange, we were, you know, exchanging glances, having little chats over wine, and realizing that we are seeing a lot of the same things even during that situation. And we kept in contact in by email, sharing pictures from the trip and the whole bit. And then Joy had some opportunities that came up and she called me and said, hey, you can do this with me. Let's try it. (laughs) And it just kind of snowballed into the book that we now have. Yeah, this is Joy. Yeah, I I think that one of the things that we noticed is that while we were in Spain, there were certain things that were going on in the session that we wanted to push back on a bit. And so we would have these side conversations. And then once we get back to the States, we talked about it more and we talked about, well, how can we collaborate? We knew that there was some kind of collaboration that we could do. And so we worked on a grant first. And then, mm-hmm. um, and then this opportunity came up with Barrett Kohler. And, you know, at first I was thinking, well, I guess I could maybe try to write this on my own but it was about sabotage and I thought well that doesn't really make sense for me to write it on my own if it's all about support and solidarity let's see what Camille's doing (laughs) Camille's already a published author she's written several books already and so so she is much more familiar with the the book publishing process than I have been 
and I've learned a lot. And so there's a lot of things that during the process that Camille would say, well, this is typically what they will do or something like that. So that was actually really helpful to, to be with somebody that's already been through it. And, um, and I think for us, just the collaboration piece was asking each other, wow, okay, so this is happening between women of color and white women. And then how is this happening with us now in real time as we write the book? So that's something that I learned a lot about while writing the book is actually what we were writing about was happening in the process as we were writing. It was like, oh, wow, now we even have more to talk about when we do workshops and things like that. And, and what does solidarity actually look like when we are working with publishers and when we're working with organizers and people that want us to do events? You know, and, and what does that actually look like? So I'm much more cognizant now of my approach to collaboration, but also my identity as a white woman and how I show up in the world and the things that I say and do that might be microaggressions that I'm not even aware of, things that I might do that I wasn't even on my radar. It was a blind spot. And that's a lot of what we talk about in the book. Right. Yeah, and I can definitely say that we did live what we talked about in the book during the whole writing, publishing production, marketing, all of that stuff. There were, there were moments where we say, hey, there's the, there it is right there. That mm-hmm. thing that we just talked about in chapter yeah. five, there it is. Oh, like, hey, there it is. Chapter three is starting to creep up. What do we do? <laughs> and it's like, aren't these people writing our book right now? <laughs> like, did so we just give them the chapter on this? Why is it now so a problem? <laughs> it's funny because like even, it's funny because even like I gave a TED talk and the first story that I gave was about talking about my weight and how my weight was being positioned as a point of discussion at work and where I never invited that. And it still happens. And I'm like, and some of my friends and stuff will say something about my weight. I'm like, well, you didn't watch the TED Talk, did you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not expecting people to watch it anyway. But I just like, oh, well, I can tell who's been. <laughs> I see your yeah, show. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not like a blame or shame type of thing at all. And it's and I think it's funny a lot of times to, to see when things pop up because now it's so much on my radar. So even the weight thing, I really don't care that much about. But I just think it's interesting how it's so prevalent now that I can see these patterns and it's just like boom, boom, boom all the time. I think it's symbolic about the assumptions that you make about who people are and what, what you're going to be looking at, what you're going to be talking about when you discuss them. And it, it, that's one of the things you get at, at in your TED Talk. And we're kind of circling back to the topic of the book itself, which is you know implied in the collaborative nature of the way that you were working together. Can you tell us a bit about the book and about how the ideas came about? Yeah, so From Sabotage to Support is a book that talks about how do we move from these systems that allow us to knowingly and unknowingly sabotage one another as women at work. And we're thinking in terms of, you know, you get a promotion. For an example, you get a promotion into management, and then you start to see the other women that are sharp and that are quick and that are able to handle business and take care of tasks in an excellent fashion, as opposed to seeing them as a potential collaborator, you see them more as competition and what might be some of the things that you might do in regards to that or how we bring the stereotypes about women into the workplace or how we might treat a black woman who might 
be a little bit more passionate in the way that she speaks and how we automatically jump to treating her as the angry black woman or something along those lines or doing little things like calling the Latina, the Latina coworker spicy because she got passionate about something. All of that is a part of what we're talking about and how do we move from that and addressing the patriarchal systems that allow us to be able to know how to shift from that to being more supportive and allowing people to be able to have that space to feel as though they can be themselves at work and not have to wear masks, not have to bring, not have to leave parts of themselves at home that they can pick up once they get off of work, not being able to not share moments of vulnerability for fear that it's going to turn into them potentially being fired or getting um, negative remarks on their um, performance reviews, all of that stuff. We walk through that entire process, but we use ourselves as an example. So it's like autoethnographic because we're telling our own stories like, wow, this happened to me. This is what I did. Or this is what I did as a contributor to some of these systems to another woman. And this is why now I am so... mortably like just apologetic for it oh my god I can't believe I did that now but but we talk about those from a personal perspective and then also with women that we talk to and sharing their stories as well and offering solutions because we know that they're real life problems what could have been done better what what could we have also have done that might have been more supportive that might have shown how you're more caring about the folks that the women that you're around and less about trying to that individual realistic only I can achieve type mentality that we that we've adopted because of patriarchy yeah and I think that one of the things that we really look at is this collaborative approach so you know how do we start to stop thinking that everything has to be a competition and that when we think about patriarchy and and white supremacy we have things that are this idea of competition and so when you are feeling like you're at the second rung of the ladder and you don't see yourself being represented as the first rung, the CEOs and leadership, you know that it's limited of how many people can get to that second rung. And so it's it's like looking down, and if other people are coming up, that sabotage is really just like, no, 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 no. I, I got to get up. And, and it feels like you're alone, it's isolating, and it feels like you can't really be supportive of somebody else because they might get that one position that only gets you know a handful of women or women of color get selected to be at. So that just creates this structure for sabotage to happen. And it's not necessarily that women are catty or that that's our nature to be that way. It is that way when systems are oppressive and are not not looking at things in a more collaborative way. And so some of the things that we talk about in the book is we really look at where does this all start from? So the beginning of the book is looking at the history of the feminist movements and all the different voices that have been marginalized in the past. The Chicana movement, the indigenous women's movement, Mujaristas, the black feminism, womanism, all of these different types of thoughts and ideologies around what feminism is. And so each of those groups look at things very differently. So indigenous women might be looking at tribal sovereignty. The Mujarista movement might be looking at unions and labor movements and immigration policies. Black women in particular look at womanism and really looks at some of the, the ways that we can all come together in more collaborative ways, but also looking at the prison system and the, and the justice system. So there's all these different ways that these different movements come into play. And when we look at the history, white women have been known to co-opt the feminist movement and just put their agenda and their issues forward. So what we're saying is that the underlying history of this movement needs to be acknowledged and understood first before we can actually move into looking at how we've been socialized 
And then how do we empower ourselves to debunk that socialization and then start to liberate each other? And we can really only do that if we understand our history and then if we understand how we've been socialized and really start to dismantle that socialization and say, like, well, wait a minute. I grew up thinking that i got to be a people pleaser all the time. I grew up thinking that, you know, my whiteness was going to grant me privilege and, and that I, you know, and there's this idea of internalized white superiority and thinking that as a white person, I am already entitled to these positions that I'm in, that I got them based purely on merit, when really there's a system of racism and oppression that allows me to have that opportunity, access to that opportunity over a person of color. And so understanding all of that, and then how do we then come together as, okay, this is what I understand about the way I've been socialized. And now I have also, as a woman, layered on top of that, what does that mean as a woman to move through this world, being socialized, looking to men for help, looking to men for, for those promotions, and then competing with other women because we think, oh, well, we're not all going to get that position, so I'm going to compete with somebody else. And so finally, we, at the end of the book, we look at, well, how do we liberate each other? And what does a day in a liberated life look like? And what's men's position in all of this? So we also want to make sure that it's not just a conversation of women, but it's actually how are men, how can they join in on this conversation and support the women that they work with, but also seek to dismantle a lot of these patriarchal notions. That doesn't serve anybody. It doesn't serve men either. No, it's true. And, and the, one of the challenges with something like this is, as you say, this is how we are all socialized. And so it's like it's the air that we breathe and it's the water that we swim in. How did you come to recognize that this was an issue that was even you were able to focus on it enough to be able to to formulate these ideas? A lot of the conversation did kind of emerge with the ways in which we would talk about some of the little things that were happening when we were together. So we, as I was saying earlier, we met in Spain. It would be a conversation over dinner that would say that they're t- we're kind of just debriefing the day because that's what you do when you're in professional development settings. At dinner time, it's oh, let's let's de- let's detox, decompress, let's talk through what's going on. And something as small as me being able to point out something that nobody else was able to pick up on because I was the only woman of color that was on the trip and being able to say, well, did you notice how this happened? Oh my God, no, I didn't see that. Or just something simple as walking down the street. Did you hear what that man just said to me? No, I didn't. Well, he said, he said, buenas noches to all of you all. But what he said to me was not that. <laughs> and being able to, I just talk through what, what those differences are. And then the more and more that Joy and I talked, even both because we're, we were both in academia and talking about some of those differences yeah. there in terms of our experiences with colleagues. And it wasn't just about this universal, all women get treated this way. There are nuances and layers, as Joy was saying, to me being a woman of color as faculty versus Joy being faculty as a white woman and how our experiences look very different. And how even like using myself as an example, just talking to her about my tenure process and what happened in there and how after I got the tenure what was still happening with other white women at the university who were still checking my credentials on a, on a regular basis to make sure that I was really qualified to be there and how that wasn't necessarily an experience that she had and having those conversations like, oh, wow, this is really different. And then we started talking about, you know, just our upbringing, what the more the closer that we got, we started talking about our upbringing and how we were socialized. 
like what my mom did for me as a single mother versus what happened in her household with her parents and her sisters and me being an only child and being in the Midwest and her being in the South. And now we're starting to see all of these various nuances <laughs> about what it means to be a woman just in the United States that doesn't only traverse color lines, but also traverses regional placement <laughs> and, and authority within your, within your institutions and all of these different things. And we said, wow, we need to talk about this and we need to lay this out for women and men in order to be able to see this. And we went to a conference last year and we're sitting in the conference and we're just, you are enjoying ourselves, of course. And the speaker says something and I was like, oh, she shouldn't use that term. (laughs) What do you mean she shouldn't use that term? I said, well, this particular term is really only supposed to reference the legal system and Black women in particular in regards to how they see their positioning. And she's using it as a way to be able to talk about how she's all these different identities wrapped up into one. That's not correct. So then we added that to the book. Like, oh, we need to talk about that because that happens all the time. We need to talk about this what this definition of what is really intersectionality and people and how they're using it and why it's out of context and why that's an example of sabotage because you're silencing women of color by doing that and all of these things. So it really was how we worked together in order to make sure that we were seeing how we lived social, how we were socialized, how that socialization affects affected how we were able to deal with one another and also reflecting on how we were able to position ourselves just with uh, with other women in our respective workplaces and also in our personal lives because it's not just at work we do this with our friends we do this with our family members our family members do it to us so being able to talk about how it went through all of those things and just both being moms I think that's the other piece of of our friendship is understanding and, you know, just knowing that how difficult it is to be a mom. And one of the things we talk about in the book, too, is authentic motherhood. And, you know, how do some women, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So damned if you do have children that you might have to take off work earlier. You can't go to all the events. Like universities love to have nightly events. And so for us, you know, I can't do those things. And I already teach at night. So, and I have to be with my daughter during that time. That's the only time she gets with me. It's nighttime. And, you know, and and for Camille too, like we both understand what that means to have children and, and the limitations that puts on us, but also what are other people's expectations of us as mothers and what are some stereotypes that they have about what we can and can't do. So we talk about that in the book. And then we talk about if you don't have children, that you're also burdened with extra stuff that people will think, well, the moms can't do it, so we're going to have, you know, the person that doesn't have kids, we're going to have them do that, that project or that thing. And so it doesn't help either one. And then we also say that if, you know, if men would take paternity leave, it actually would help alleviate a lot of this. So there's there's so many different nuances, like Camille was saying, with our identities and how that impacts how we show up at work and how we're perceived at work. Yeah, I think it's a statement about the the place feminism is today that the motherhood question, as opposed to the parenthood question, is still an issue. Right, exactly. The maternal wall. Mm-hmm. And so the the two of you have uh, you you have both have academic careers. So publishing is part of the nature of an of academic work. And Camille, and uh, I know uh, Joy mentioned that you'd published several books. Yes, this is my fifth one that I've done, and then I've also done some contributions for some chap for a 
chapter contributions as well. So this is, I, I love this project because, you know, every every project is a passion project, right? But I, I love when I'm able to talk about and use my own experiences as a way to kind of talk through some of the things that we're, that we experience, not just from an academic setting. I like being able to make sure that I'm not writing just for the ivory tower or to sit on a shelf. It really is going to be tangible things that folks are going to be able to do and be able to you open it up and refer to and post it notes like that's my dream when people open up books that I've written that they're able to go back to it and hold on to things and I really think that that's one of the things that we did with this project that I think is phenomenal like there are places there are stories in here that women can, can save and say oh my god this was me what was that that she said that she did got what what can I go back and do like how can I fix this how can I change this and being able to use it as a as something almost like a, this this is my solidarity Bible now because I have all these different examples of how I can help or how I can how I can correct places because that's one of the things that we say in the book too like it's never too late to say I'm sorry it's never too late to fix it if it happened 10 years ago you can still go back and fix it (laughs) and this is how it this is how you want to do that in order to make sure that women want to that women know that you are someone that can be trusted and you can be supportive of them just like you would expect them to be supportive and be and you be able to trust them too I was thinking about that because I can just imagine it must be so wrenching to go through your own history. And as you come across these things, these slights that you've created, these microaggressions that you might have perpetrated over the years to realize them and then feel like, what do you do about that at this point? Right. And that's one of the things that we found in the workshops, because we'll say things and that question comes up like it came up just with the, in a workshop we just did. The question was, well, I've already done this. So now what? What am I supposed to do now? How do I go back and fix it? Just say you were wrong and do better. It's really, it doesn't take a whole, it doesn't take a long-winded, I like to use the term, it does, it's not a deep and smoky conversation. I'm sorry I did this. I acknowledge I did this. And this is what I'm going to do different end of story. It takes all of five minutes unless they got questions. (laughs) I think it's also this idea of being humble and knowing that we all have something to learn and that it's not always just, you know, about you. So I think what you said, David, about that, it's the air that we breathe. Mm -hmm. And when we think about it's the air that we breathe and it's the way we've been socialized, when you just start to be more reflective and look at that and say, oh, I wonder why I said that, or I wonder, you know, when my students ask me a lot of times, what do you say to people when they commit a microaggression? And I said, Mm -hmm. well, you just ask them questions. It's the inquiry-based approach. So why do you think that? And then they can start to dig a little bit deeper and realize, oh, hmm, maybe that's not what I think. Maybe I don't have any evidence for that. Maybe that's not what I think at all. It's just something I'm repeating that I heard that I didn't really give a lot of thought to. So that's, that's something, too, that when you think about humility and, and being humble in your own learning and not always getting defensive and not always feeling like you have to defend yourself because this person's attacking you. Not everything is an attack. It's just a, it's a feedback process. And I think that that's a part of the process as well. And when you asked about how do we come to this place where we understood or started to come to this topic, for me, I think it's been a long time coming. Since I was 19, I became an activist for the first time. That was something that I was like, oh, wow. You know, I started to realize racism at a very early age. And so I just started to dig a little bit deeper on that and have more conversations. And so it's been, you know, a 25-year process of unearthing things about myself and my upbringing. 
And I think that, you know, for people to think you have to do everything perfectly and know exactly what's going on in your life and why you said the things you did, it's, it's a really long process. And it's a process of constantly unearthing and digging a little bit deeper and, and cultivating a new way of moving through the world. So I think one of the, the pieces of value that this book really brings is that it provides some examples that people can point to, even if they don't find those examples in their own lives or in their own role models. These are stories and cases where people can see, oh, this, this was a situation and this is how they dealt with it. Yeah, and I, and I like the fact that Joy is stressing the idea that it doesn't, it's not something that you can just turn off and on with the light switch. It's not read the book, oh, yes, I'm cured. I'm now standing in solidarity and supportive of all women. <laughs> it, it takes reflection and it takes time and there's, there's no set way. So what I need to do in order to make sure that I'm more supportive and standing in solidarity with women is going to look different than what Joy needs and what's going what's gonna to feel good for her. And, you know, we talk about, we talk about this whole idea of allyship and what that means and making sure that, you know, you don't just walk up to someone and say, hey, I'm your ally, because that's not really how it works. And understanding the process, that there is a process to even being named that, like even to be, to be seen as an ally is a process. It's not just you wake up one day and say, I'm going to be an ally, and you step out into the world and everybody says, yes, you're an ally. <laughs> so being able to talk about how everything takes takes time and it's not something that's going to happen very quickly and being graceful with that process as opposed to being impatient so that you can get to the product the product is coming and the process is what gets you to the product and it's important that we just as people since we're talking about being supportive and standing in solidarity regardless of whether you um, identify as male or female male man or woman it's important for you to be okay with the process and what that looks like on you and being able to wear the coat and wear the coat comfortably. Yeah, I think, too, when you talk about the, the process gets you to the product, it's like, you know, if, if we do engage in these conversations, especially around hard conversations like race and gender and, and sexual orientation, all of these different things, if we don't engage in this process, we're not going to learn anything. And we are going to step on toes and we are going to say wrong things. And it's just inevitable. But to not have the conversation is really invoking privilege. And and really saying, well, I don't want to I don't want to engage because I might say something wrong. Well, actually, you're just perpetuating the problem when you do that. And I think that that's really important for white folks in particular to understand and people with with privilege to understand. And, and that can look in many different ways. It's not just along racial lines, but it's really, you know, along many different lines, even geographic, class, age, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of those things. And one of the things that we said in the book was that the trans movement is one of the movements that's really blowing all that up, blowing up this idea of sexism in general. And so if you want to look at a movement that is blowing, you know, this whole gender thing, binary out of the water, it's the trans movement. And so that's important for us to say in the book is that there's all these different things that people may not know about. It's true. And I, I think you mentioned the term intersectionality before and how that relates to this. Yes, we um, we talk about intersectionality and really try to make sure that folks are clear about the terminology. As a lot of times when we hear intersectionality, people are looking at, you know, intersectionality applies to everyone. I have intersections because I am a white woman who is of the middle class. And I also know that I have an Italian mom and like all of these different things. Like, and so that makes me intersectional. But intersectionality at its root and at its birth was really looking at critical race theory in relation to the law and how women 
how black women were viewed in, in relation to the law. So when we're talking about intersectionality, we're looking at gender, race, and class in order for that to actually truly be intersectionality. And anything beyond that is more converging identities and not necessarily intersectionality. And one of the things that Joy and I have, like we explained in the book and we had to talk through it ourselves is this whole idea, you know, when, when someone who is not a woman of color decides that they want to say that they're intersectional, I've just been silenced in that moment because that's a term that was intended for me. So for you to then take it and say, no, I am, it's kind of, oh, okay, well, so much for that. Because, you know, <laughs> we, we need to have these, these unique identifiers in order to be able to see our place in the world. And when, when people decide, oh, I think I like that term, I'm going to use it for myself, then that the whole purpose of the, of the term being brought into existence in the first place is then silenced and muted and then pushed to the side in order for this other person, usually a, a non-person, a person that is not of color, a white person, um, uses it in order to center themselves once again. And for those of us who are women of color, we're like, I mean, well, at some point, we would like to be able to have at least a little bit of focus on us <laughs> without it turning back into, and it's, and it's not to say that you don't have your, plate, your, your spaces to be able to do that. We're not saying that you can't be centered. It's just, this was our space for centering, and we'd like to keep it that way. And we didn't, necessarily, we opened the door so you can see, not so you can come in and move in. <laughs> <laughs> and take over in a sense. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and this moment is a case in point, because when I heard the term intersectionality, I was introduced to that term in the context of gender primarily. I wasn't aware of its historical significance, and now that's been explained to me, and now I understand better. Yes. And even in the, the TED Talk, I had heard this about intersectionality, and so then when Camille and I started writing the book, I was like, oh, she explained to me about how it was basically taking the focus away from black women and the legal system and I was like oh my gosh I kind of want to redo the TED talk because I had you know used it in that way like of, of of the intersecting and so now we call it converging identities which I think is much better and I think it also it doesn't take that work away from Kimberly Crenshaw who has done such important work for such a long time on that and so how do we just use different terminology and understanding too how our language is so important of, of what the words that we say and what they mean and the impact that they have. Absolutely. Language is, is critical to all of this. It's how we think. It's the way we map the world around us. I love that you're focusing on building appropriate terminology around around all of these different concepts as you bring them up. And then also raising attention for the concepts that people, the terms that people might be using that they might not be using correctly or they might not be familiar with. We don't want to say, don't use this. You can't have it. We want to say there are other options. And we want to make sure we, again, in, in efforts of being supportive, we're not saying that you can't name your various identities. We're saying, let's just use some of these other terms instead, because these other terms are more appropriate. They're more befitting of who you are and how you and how you stand in the world. Your positionality requires these words as opposed to the ones that you've been using so that you can still have that thing. Because, you know, we all still want that thing for ourselves. We do. And just helping folks to be able to say, okay, this, these are the terms that you need to know why they're used 
the historical significance behind their usage so that you can be able to use the things that really do apply to you and not just things that, you know, we're big on choosing words because they sound sexy and go moving out of the sexiness and into the, this is, this is exactly, this is an exact representation of who I am and how I stand in this world. And as a woman or as a man, or as a person with multiple identities, as someone who is biracial, as someone who is transgendered, this word fits me, but based off of all of these things. So did you two come to the concept of converging identities as a term yourselves as part of this? There's There are places where, at least I'll, I'll say amongst Black scholars, converging identities is a terminology that we offered as a counter to intersectionality, that folks just weren't saying, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take that and run with it. <laughs> so being able to center it in the book in a way that helps people to be able to see, no, this is what you should do instead, and really explaining it out. Because there's a difference between being able to have someone say, you know, because my intersectionality is, yes, you're converging identities, and them not catch it, versus no, stop, pause, let's not use intersectionality. Let's use converging identities instead. And this is why you need to use converging identities instead. So it's one of those things that we're helping folks to be able to see this is something I know you've heard it before. And this is why we're using it and explaining it in a way that makes sense so that people can say, oh, okay, well, let me start using that now then. Yeah. And I think it's also when you can name something, it's really liberating and you can name your experience. And for me, being a queer woman, like I grew up and all I had was there was gay, lesbian and bisexual. And now there's these, you know, sapiosexual, pansexual. I'm like, oh, my gosh, all the words. And it's still not enough. But, you know, I think for for someone like myself who grew up with a very binary look at the way that that sexuality runs it was so liberating just to see that there was a a term that could encompass what i was feeling in my experience which is different than other people's and so you know we all have different experiences and so to have that one thing that was named for you and that captures what you've been thinking and feeling but you never had a term or a name for it is is really liberating I think that's one of the reasons why I feel optimistic about the coming generations, because they're growing up at a time when a lot of this terminology is already out there, and the concept of building this terminology around around real phenomena is what people are thinking about these days. They're not just accepting, by default, the binary of gender, for example. I was curious if the, if the book is targeted more at women in the workplace or at a younger generation coming up. Like, Do you have a target audience in mind around this? We have several, actually, no. and it's primarily intended for women of the workplace. But I know that I have uh, like friends and former colleagues who are going to use it as a textbook, and they want to make sure that as they're teaching their gender studies courses, as they're teaching their feminism in the workplace courses, as they're teaching feminist psychology, they want to bring this book in as a way to kind of talk about the various scenarios and being able to apply what we talk about in the book to that particular field, be it psychology or business or whatever it might be, so that prior to even going into the workforce, they're already equipped with what they need to be supportive. And they're already equipped with what they need in terms of asking for what they want so that they can go to every job with that authentic self on display and not that and not bringing the masks. A lot of times when we leave school, we're we're taught how to mask ourselves so that when we go into work, we're we're pleasantly acceptable to everyone <laughs> and, and being able to use it and, and in the classrooms and higher ed classrooms will start to cultivate 
a generation of graduates who are already doing this thing because they're, they've been reading and it's been a part of their curriculum so that by the time we get into the workplace, we have women en masse who are coming in and men en masse who are coming in in order to be able to change the scope. It's it's easy to, to change a system when you got a thousand people working on it versus just two or three. So it's it's intended for the workplace, yes, but we know that it's is absolutely beneficial at the university level as well for um, for up and coming scholars who are up and coming graduates and students right now in whatever field they might find themselves in, being able to use it as their way to be ready for a changing workforce because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to change how people look at women in the workplace. Yeah, and I think, too, like um, I'm in education, and so it's a mostly female-dominated workspace where it's still mostly white men that are the superintendents and the principals. And so it's still definitely that that structure that we're trying to to dismantle. And so for, for education, for higher education, for even the other disciplines like anthropology and sociology, those all, you know, have have female-dominated positions that are – that are sabotaging each other or, or trying to make it. And there's a lot of people that are leaving and they're leaving these high powered positions or they're leaving their positions in general because they're experiencing this and there's no name for it. And sometimes, you know, when, when women push back on this idea of sabotage, they're like, well, that's, you know, why are we perpetuating that idea that we do that? And we're like, well, no, we're just naming something that's happening. That's not necessarily within our control. It's just, it's a phenomenon that's happening that has to be named in order for us to stop it. That was one of the things I was wondering about, actually, because I imagined that there would be pushback from potential readers and from reviewers out there to the concept that you're almost codifying the concept of sabotage, whereas it's been an, uh, like an unstated or part of the social dialogue, but now you're formalizing it by pointing it out and recognizing it in this book. And we did, I mean, we did have women who were part of the review process and being able to help us with the production, with the production of the book, who said, you know, that wasn't my experience. So are you sure that's the case? Like, well, yeah, (laughs) just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean that it's not something that's happening and being able to address, you know, we understand that women have very, have very different experiences and we want to make sure that it's clear that. Part of it is a, it's a learning process, and part of us being able to be supportive is being able to acknowledge that what our reality is might not necessarily be another woman's reality, and what might seem just way out of the box, just I can't even conceive somebody would have just that horrible of a life as a woman is somebody's reality. (laughs) Being able to acknowledge those differences is really important for us to be able to truly be supportive. So even in our, in the process of even publishing the book, we encountered a little bit of that pushback. Well, I don't understand. Well, this doesn't make sense. I can't possibly, this can't possibly be a real example. No, it is a real example. It actually did happen to us. And I know it might seem just inconceivable on your end because that's not how you were socialized. We were socialized differently. And we think it's important to be able to share that story because there's another woman who was socialized that way too, that this is going to speak to and it's going to help her to be able to come out of that so that she can be more trusting of other women. Because we're sharing how we might have left that situation with maybe not trusting a woman as much or not believing in ourselves as much or adding to another mask, another layer to how we hide ourselves and making sure that we know that everybody is going to be different, but 
everybody needs to know. And we all need to know what those differences are. I think, too, I love that right after the Brett Kavanaugh hearings and my daughter and I were coming back from New York. And it was really poignant to me because this is right when we were doing the editing process in September and a woman on the plane had a shirt that said, Believe Women. And I was like, you know, even though that's not your experience, it's somebody else's experience and to believe them that that is their experience. And I think it also, you know, when my my cousin and her wife were talking about, I said, oh, well, somebody told me that they don't think it's a thing, that sabotage is not a thing. And my cousin's wife goes, well, maybe that's because they're the saboteur. And I was like, oh, maybe. And I was like, wow. I mean, that really hit me because I thought, I'd never thought of it that way, that if, right. if you don't believe somebody, then perhaps you're the one perpetuating it. I'm not saying that that's true for everybody, but I'm just saying that that, that might be something that, yeah. Might be in your realm of existence. That a moment of reflection. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. It's, it's like it's an opportunity to hold up a mirror to yourself and just ask the question at the very least. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, this whole thing is like mirrors and windows, right? You know, you might see yourself in this book and you might see a window to a new perspective. And, and we hope that we offer both of those. Right. So you mentioned that during the process of writing this book, you stumbled across a number of these issues for yourselves. I'm curious how that played out and how that affected the collaboration and the writing process. It actually really helped us. Like there are some examples where, you know, we talk about this example a lot where there is there's a process where, you know, because we're co-authors, they're trying to copy us both on everything and this, that and the other. And then we get to this one stage and the particular person that we were engaging with was like, well, I only deal with the first author, like, but we're both the first author. So for a minute, she wasn't including me on emails. So there was all this stuff, there were all these conversations that she and Joy were having that I was not privy to. And she just so Joy would send me a message, hey, what about this? And I'm like, I'm sorry, what, what, it, what is that that you're talking about? Oh, shoot, you weren't included. And then going back, oh, wait, you weren't included in all of this stuff. How do we think we should handle this? And I, I said very bluntly, very honestly, you need to handle that. I can't do it. You need to fix that because that is that is an example of a microaggression. And if I come out and say this, then it's going to be perceived as whatever whatever stereotype they might already have. So I think coming from you, it would be better if you address it and if you fix it and then we'll just move from there. And she did. And they're, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. And the inclusion happened. So finding those places where we're bumping into these moments of sabotage, this unknowing and knowing sabotage and addressing it head on. This is what it is and you need to fix it. And this is why we're writing this book because you need to, we can't have stuff like this. There needs to be questions that you're not asking. There are assumptions that you're making that need to get fixed. And and I'm in the position, as the position of, of power and privilege to be able to tell you for yourself that this needs to be fixed so that you don't do this to somebody else later on. So basically taking taking the hits so that other folks don't have to get bumped. <laughs> yeah, and I think it, it also, it opens, you know, for, for, on my end, it opened my eyes to a lot of different little subtle things that were happening that when experienced constantly, it really can take a person down. It can really just start to weigh on you. And so, you know, I think that for us, like for me, when I think about white people in, in particular, that white folks need to educate other white folks and that it should not be on the burden of people of color to do that. And it should not be on the burden of on the marginalized group to educate the dominant group. It is important that the dominant group, that, that the one withholding the power, is the one 
saying, hey, wait a minute, we're doing some things wrong here. There's some things that we're not even thinking about. There's some subtle implicit biases that we have that we're perpetuating this system again and again, and maybe we don't even know it. And so how can we start to dismantle that a bit more and, and take a good look at it and start to tear it down? I can see that. And it sounds like uh, your process was going through a, a more formalized publisher as opposed to doing the self-publishing route. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, we did go through. Um, we did go through a publishing. We went with Bear Caller Publishers. That's who our publishing our publishers were. And, and I'll say, and I'll say in a general sense, because yes, there were moments of there were learning moments that we had as we were going around, but they were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. As a publishing company, they were fantastic. They absolutely took care of us. They were open and receptive, and we we loved the process in general. But of course, with everything, there are little places where like, hey, let's tweak this a little bit so it's a little bit better so that the next time around, it doesn't happen in the same way. Yeah. And you know what I love about Barrett Kohler as well is they're a B Corp organization. And so that's really hard to get. And it's really focusing on equity. And then also the fact that we got to choose our cover. We got through every We were part of every single process of the editing, the, the marketing. We are really an, an integral part of that process. That whereas most big house publishers, you might not get that. And so for Barrett Kohler to work with us as much as they did and to be as open as they were to all of the things and always asking us, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? I mean, it was, it was really, I would definitely publish with them again. I'm curious how that conversation went in terms of deciding whether or not to self-publish versus going with a publisher and then how the process was about pitching and approaching a publisher in the first place. Well, the, the publisher actually came to you, Joy, correct? Isn't that the... Well, so I had uh, Tiffany Jana wrote Overcoming Bias, and she and I had a discussion at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion, and she said, I'm going to connect you with my publisher. And so actually, so what happened was is that I contacted them, and then the the guy that I talked to in the beginning said, I'm going to forward you to Anna Leenberger, who would, would be working more around this topic. And then I started to talk to her, and then I said, hey, you know, as I'm exploring this with you, I would really like to bring Camille on. I think it would be a really rich discussion. I think it would make the the book way more powerful if the two of us came in and and had more of a dialogue. And um, and so they were totally open to that. And then we just sent them the first two chapters, right? Um, Yeah, we did two chapters with the proposal, two sample mm -hmm. chapters. Yeah, so then they could decide whether or not they wanted to contract with us. And it, it seemed like it was, they were already willing to do that. And then after that, it just... You know, they just said, okay, here's here's the format, here's what we're going to do, here's the deadlines, this is, you know, when these chapters need to be done. And, and then they, we had an author day where we were flown to Oakland to the publisher's office, and uh, we got to present our book before it was published and before we were even done yet. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the process, we did it pretty quickly. I was, how, how long do you think? Maybe a year and a half? Yeah, it's probably about Sorry. 18 months or so start, from the very beginning stages of, hey, I'm bringing Camille on until mm-hmm. last week. So what was the process like? What was the back and forth? How did you divide up the work and how did you collaborate? Google. <laughs> we spent a lot of time in Google Docs because it made it that much easier for us to be able to make sure that we were asking questions in real time, that we were able to see what the other was doing. We were able to do suggested changes. So that made it, that helped us in terms of, well, no, I think maybe we should keep that. Let's not, uh, oh, no, that's really good. Or how about we just take this whole thing out and move it over to chapter three and let's see what it looks like. So it made it easier for us in terms of collaboration because we really felt as though 
we were both doing it in real time. And granted, our schedules are totally different. She's West Coast, I'm East Coast. So what I'm working on at eight o'clock in the morning, she's still in bed (laughs) and vice versa. If she's working at eight o'clock at night, I'm in bed. So, But being able to see the comments and being able to, we would meet every so often to come together. Okay, so what do you think about this? So what do you think, how should we work through this thing here? Or what do you think about these suggestions? What should be our response? We would share our drafts of emails before we send them off. This is what I want to send to them about this. Is this okay with you? Do you want me to add anything? And making sure that we just stayed in constant contact with each other. I think we might actually go through a little bit of withdrawal because now that everything is done, it's kind of outside of us doing interviews for the book and and workshops. We're not really going to be as involved with each other as we were for the past 18 months. So I don't know how we're going to handle that being able to be around and be connected to one another as often as we were but um but yeah so google was the way that we did it it made things a lot smooth i think it worked smoothly because i've worked in other collaborations where we're just kind of changing and and sending email attachments back and forth back and forth back and forth and that was a nightmare being able to use the google docs and drives and folders and here's chapter one and with all the various edits thereof and chapter five with all the edits and hey here's some extra stuff that we don't want to lose so we'll just keep it over here in this folder in case you want to bring it into another chapter was really helpful for us in terms of making sure that we were efficient and still productive every time we went into work on it. And I imagine working with a publisher also helps keep you organized and keep those deadlines focused in the future. So, you know, there's an editor out there waiting for this and that editor is going to work with me when this is ready. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Deadlines are very important. (laughs) (laughs) So I know that a lot of my listeners are going to be really curious to find out about your book and to find out more about you. Where can I send them to get more information? Well, <laughs> there's a, a few places. So the book is available on Amazon. So they can absolutely go there, get the book, read the book, write a review. <laughs> <laughs> yes, write those reviews. There will be a link in the show notes. And we also have our own respective websites where you can contact us and you can contact us about the book and about coming and doing workshops and all of that stuff. My website is Kami, K-A-M-I-J Anderson, PhD.com. And Joy's information is... <laughs> joy joywiggins.com so it's j-o-y-w-i-g-g-i-n-s.com and yeah local bookstores too i think yes shout local out. shout out too. shout out for the local bookstores shout out to the independent booksellers because they have been our friend too Absolutely. And I heard mention of workshops, that there may be some workshops coming up as well. Yes. And we're available for workshops, too. So if people want to you get the book, you're like, oh, I really want somebody to come in and talk about this book at my job. We're, we're available to do those things. It's just a matter of just contacting us through our website so that we might be able to work out those those logistics so we can come and do it. We're more than happy to. We really want we want more people to feel as though they can get something substantial out of it, as opposed to just kind of reading the book and then putting it off to the side. We really want them to know that this is something that they can use and utilize and actually really incorporate into their daily work life so that they can be successful in being able to stand in solidarity with one another. Yeah. And, you know, I had a, I have a client that wants to do a book club. And so what they're doing is that they are, they're actually buying the book from the publisher and then they're going to, at some point, want us to do a webinar. 
And so that's that's another option is, you know, we don't necessarily have to physically come. We can always do a webinar with folks, if they're, especially if they're doing a book club. So we have a lot of different options of things that we did. Camille was just in Seattle. We were doing the workshop on mending the broken trust between black and white women. And so that's something that we did that some an organization brought us in and then opened it up to the community. So those are di- so all different kinds of things that, that we can do. That's awesome. Well, it certainly doesn't sound like the collaboration is going to end anytime soon. I don't think so either. It's I think not so, this is different now. I, I tell her, I say, you're stuck with me. <laughs> Especially because I think it's doing so well. So we're like, right. wow. That's awesome. Well, Joy, Camille, it's a real pleasure meeting you. And for the listeners from Sabotage to Support, go out and read it. Leave those reviews on Amazon. Yes, awesome. thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for having us, Davis. Yes. Thank you for being here. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.